Well, it's been a very soggy, drought-breaking winter out here on the California coast, but spring finally did arrive, and with it, my need to get a perfect tomato going in the garden. But wait a minute, what exactly is a perfect tomato? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host Michael Olson, and now get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. You are tuned into the 1342nd edition of the Food Chain Radio program. Or, hey, perhaps you're among our friends way down there in Santiago who are tuned into the Food Chain podcast at metrofarm.com. Well, wherever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Folks, it was a soaking wet winter, and it broke a Bone-dry, year long, years-long drought. Must have been seven years drought there. And that capped off three really dreary years of pandemic. But spring has arrived, and with it the hope of life bursting forth out of the earth with shouts of joy. Hallelujah! We are alive. And we are alive, too. So we head out into the garden and pull back all the dead and dying of winter and throw it into the compost pile so we get down on our hands and knees and start digging in the dirt. I have Cynthia Sandberg. Cynthia is the farmer, the teacher, and the entrepreneur of Love Apple Farm. So welcome back to the food chain, Cynthia. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. Good. You know, last time we uh, worked together on a show, it was number 558, and this is 1342, and that means 784 shows have passed under the bridge since then, 15 years worth. So the wow. last show we did was with David Kinch of Manresa yeah. Restaurant, right? Right, and, yeah. And for those folks who don't, don't know David, he's a well-known California chef, he was the uh, owner of Manresa, which was a Michelin-starred restaurant in Silicon Valley. And we were doing a show with David uh, about perfection. How close can you get to being perfect in a restaurant? Because David was going for Michelin stars and getting them, which means that whatever he was doing had to be perfect. I asked him, you know, David... Uh, what must one serve to become one of the best of the best? And David's answer was, well, Cynthia Sandberg's tomatoes. Folks, before we proceed with the present, let's go back 15 years to that interview with David Kinch, Cynthia Sandberg, and yours truly, Michael Olson. You have to be a pretty aggressive guy. Well, n not really. I mean, you know, you, you can't worry too much about other restaurants, you can't worry about too much about other extra uh, everything outside the restaurant. You can only worry about your own product and 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 specifically the customers to, who come into your restaurants. I yeah, mean, but when it came to your product, then you're a pretty aggressive guy, right? Well, of course. I mean, you know, it's it's a physical impossibility to take a mediocre product and and through the wizardry 
of being a fantastic chef or a great chef uh, and turn it into something uh, truly spectacular. That's a physical impossibility. Uh, any great chef, any self-respecting chef will tell you that the first thing you have to do to make a really astonishing dish is you have to start with the best possible product that you can find and or afford. And and that is the secret. That it's it's it sounds boring, but you know, and it sounds almost like a cliche. But uh, I think nowadays, with truly great quality products becoming harder and harder to find, uh, even with the the, the distribution change, uh, the ability to get anything from anywhere around the world, uh, it's becoming harder and harder to focus in on on these really extra special ingredients. Good time to introduce Cynthia, of course. Ah, Cynthia Sandberg, Love Apple Farms. Um, gosh, I've been watching you for a long time with your tomatoes. Uh, you've you had an incredible selection of heirloom tomatoes. And folks, I used to love going up to Cynthia's Love Apple Farm and just to take pictures and sample her tomatoes. Um, and I went up there once and she told me uh, about going out to dinner. Hi, Michael. Yeah, I went out to dinner couple, three years ago at Manresa, after I'd heard about their great success and I wanted to see what it was all about, had a f- absolutely phenomenal dinner, best dinner of my life, and the chef came out. What was so good about it? Oh, boy, everything. Every, every little ingredient was treated so carefully and lovingly and presented in such an exquisite way that you couldn't help but have it. A fabulous experience eating it. The, the the service was sublime. The the wine was fabulous. The pairing of the wine with the exquisite food and the um, the quality of each ingredient really really was telling. You could mm-hmm. you could absolutely taste it and experience with it with every bite. Did you bang on the on the table with your wine goblet and say, "I want to meet the chef"? Actually, the chef came out and introduced himself to me. I, somebody had told him that I grow a lot of tomatoes, and he was always interested, currently is interested in sourcing from the Santa Cruz Mountains, and that's where my little micro farm is. Uh, so he came out and introduced himself and asked if I wouldn't uh, bring him some tomatoes later in the year when they became ripe. And I did that, and we started supplying Manresa with tomatoes. and. The really great tomato season is on, is very, very short, unbeknownst to a lot right, of people. Right. And so it was just a small partnership at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, the partnership grows when we get back from this break. Folks, this is the Food Chain. Mike Olson here. Today we're, taking, we're talking a little bit about what it takes to become the very best of the very best. And we're talking about the world of fine dining. Uh, we're talking with Chef David Kinch from Manresa Restaurant in Los Gatos, California. And Cynthia Sandberg from Love Apple Farm in uh, Ben Lomond, California. Uh, close together and uh, they're becoming closer and closer as we talk. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about how they got married, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, and how they found their way into the mysticism of Rudolf Steiner's biodynamics. And now, back to the present. And, <laughs> Cynthia, um, you were growing tomatoes with what you called Preparation 501. What is that? Well, it just means that we, um, it's like a, it's a kitchen sink method of, of planting tomatoes that I kind of cobble together out of trial and error and research and, and old lore and uh, new lore 
about uh, giving the tomatoes everything that they they might want and more to succeed and grow perfectly. And um, we put a lot of things in our planting hole. We're a little bit we're we're a little bit renowned for this crazy recipe that we have. We put all-purpose fertilizer, worm castings, fish meal, bone meal, um, aspirin tablets, and uh, eggshells. We, if we, if we're really getting into it, then instead of fish meal, which is ground up, um, dry, dehydrated fish, instead of that, we can put a fish head in the bottom of the planting hole, like the Native Americans used to do when planting corn. And um, we have a lot of luck with this recipe that's kind of gone viral throughout the United States. And uh, it's a it's a wonderful way. One more step in getting in getting the perfect tomato. Well, and that sounds like it takes a lot to get a perfect tomato. And uh, your preparation 501 would certainly point to the the uh, fact that you're trying your best to get the perfect tomato, which, of course, is what I'm trying to do, too. Now, I put a lot of things in my tomato holes as well. Uh, but uh-huh. aspirin? <laughs> yeah, well, aspirin comes from uh, a uh, one of many studies done on growing better tomatoes. And somebody hypothesized, I don't know who or why, but this is a legit scientific study that anybody could look up on the Internet. Of, uh, of a scientist thinking if I spray my tomatoes with an aspirin spray every week, am I going to get better tomatoes? And the results of that study was a resounding yes, you do get better tomatoes when you spray your tomatoes once a week with an aspirin spray. And the I, I think the idea comes from the fact that aspirin is a salicylic acid. It's derived from willow trees. It's been shown to um, boost the tomato's immune system. So now you've got a healthier, more robust, stronger tomato plant, more able to withstand uh, disease and other trials and tribulations. In addition to a stronger tomato, these tomatoes put out more flowers, hence more fruit. And that's what we want. Absolutely. But do you think Tylenol would work? Nope. It's got to be good old aspirin, not Motrin, not Mydol, not ibuprofen. <laughs> it's got to have this salicylic acid component to it. Um, and the recipe basically is in a two-gallon uh, garden sprayer full of water. You drop one and a half aspirin tablets, normal strength, everyday aspirin tablets. Shake it up real well. You spray the entire tomato with it, even if it had fruit on it. Um, you can even spray other things in your garden because it is a um, interesting way to help your garden plants, particularly tomatoes. The study was done specifically on tomatoes to become stronger. And, you know, during these times of COVID, what are, what are we humans trying to do with ourselves? We're trying to make ourselves healthier. Uh, with stronger immune systems to help us ward off diseases as well. So that's what we're trying to do with the tomatoes. And it seems to work. Yes. And it works for Cynthia Sandberg, so it's going to probably work for you. Love Apple Farms. Love apples? Where did that come from? (laughs) 
Michael, that's an old European nickname for tomatoes. And I thought it was a cute name. And my farm is called Love Apple Farms rather than Tomato Farm. Uh, and uh, the, the only problem with that name, Michael, is that I was told after I named my place Love Apple Farms, it is not a good idea to name your company, your business, a name that you have to explain its meaning. <laughs> but, I, but I'd already named it that. The cat was already out of the bag. And so I, use, I do need to explain the name uh, every so often to folks. Well, let's go. You know, originally, the tomato originated, as I understand it, or at least its use as a, a, a food item in Mexico and then was hauled into Europe by the conquistadors. That's right. You know, a lot of good things happened or originated south of the border. Tomatoes, chocolate, vanilla, tequila, corn. So a lot of our staples uh, <laughs> uh, of our diet uh, worldwide, uh, if you can want to consider tequila a staple, some people do. <laughs> but chocolate and vanilla and corn, those are and tomatoes, those are huge foods uh, that we eat. And uh, they all originated south of the border. Mm-hmm. And then, um, of course, in Italy, somebody said they're an aphrodisiac. And if you want to sell something, that's a great place to start, right? That's right. You might as well start with the tomato. It's uh, it's pretty dang healthy. But it's also related to the hemlock, is it not? Um, I don't know about hemlock. I do know that it's uh, related to deadly nightshade. Night- yes, nightshade. I'm sorry. Yes. Right. So right. you ha- here you have an aphrodisiac that's um, also related to a deadly poison, which caused some confusion in its introduction to the United States, right? It did. When the conquistadores brought the seed back from the New World to the Old World, the botanists there uh, could, could see that that seed resembled the weed seed, deadly nightshade, and so they... Um, were correct in opining that these were related plants. And the first people that propagated and grew out uh, the tomato from um, uh, New World Mexico, wasn't even called Mexico back in those days, of course, uh, they, they dared not eat the fruit of this new plant. And I don't know who it was that took the first step, Maybe somebody just extra crazy hungry, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, no deaths, no, uh, yeah. no illness reported. Yep. Well, uh, I read an amusing story way back in 1820 on the uh, courthouse steps in Salem, New Jersey. One Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson ate a tomato in public, and people <laughs> stood there and were watching to see if he would fall over and die. But he didn't, <laughs> and he actually talked a couple of other people in the audience to give it a try and then invited them to dinner, when, where, of course, he was serving tomatoes. And um, press got wind of that, and away it went. Now, what the heck is it about the tomato that is so much fun, that makes it so interesting to eat? Oh, I, you know what, gosh, that's a really good question, for me, I know I know how I fell in love with them 
you know, I've always liked to eat tomatoes, but like everybody else, you know, if you like tomatoes, you like tomatoes. If you don't, typically you don't. So I liked tomatoes all my life, but I wasn't crazy about them until I started growing tomatoes because as you're probably aware, Michael, when you first start vegetable gardening, a good tomato plant is usually what new gardeners want to grow the most. Um, and uh, not every one of them, but most of them. So I was the same way 30 years ago when I first started gardening. I, I wanted to grow some tomato plants, not because not I was crazy about them, but because, hey, I want to grow a tomato. And then I started getting into these different crazy colors and shapes and flavors and realized that they are so diverse in their appearance and their flavor that that's when I fell hard for them. And I ended up loving the love apple with a passion and uh, made it my profession. <laughs> well, you're probably not the only one. And as a matter of fact, as the uh, tomato is probably the one plant that most gardeners obsess over. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. I think part of that is... It, the feeling of going out into the garden and picking literally the fruits of your labor off many fruits off of healthy, happy tomato plants. There's, there's little that a gardener can do better than that um, as far as finding joy in the garden. And the feeling that you get as an earth mother or father building, propagating, creating, feeding your family, feeding yourself. That's, that's a really special feeling. And I think it's what keeps people vegetable gardening, despite the fact that, you know, their local grocery store is uh, right down the street. Well, there's a lot more to it when you grow it yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. There's the physical act of you know, just clearing things away and, and making the soil ready to plant. And then there's having your fingers and your, your hands in the soil uh, mm -hmm. and, and feeling the potential in that soil. It's just uh, electric. It kind of goes right up into your... Well, I was studying Chinese once at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, I'd spend hours and hours and hours in the language lab. And then I'd stumble out of that language lab and there, right next to the langu language lab, was um, a garden put together by this crazy English Shakespearean actor named Ellen Chadwick. And <laughs> Ellen Chadwick had figured out how to get all the pretty girls to dig in the dirt. And, of course, when the pretty girls were digging in the dirt, pretty or young men were there as well. And so I would sit on a log in the sunshine, watching all these people dig in the dirt and thinking, boy... Did I miss something somewhere along the line? This is the Food Chain Radio Program with Cynthia Sandberg. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will talk about the impact of what's in the tomato that tastes so good. So please do stay tuned. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I am Michael Olson. Today we're talking with Cynthia Sandberg. She is the farmer, the teacher, and the entrepreneur of Love Apple Farms in Santa Cruz, California. So pleased to have you with us today, Cynthia. Now, there's something in the tomato 
that just turns regular, ordinary food like corn and wheat and whatever into something magic. What is it that in the tomato that makes just about everything work in a meal? Well, I think it's because you can, it's so versatile in cuisine. You can use it fresh. You can use it, um, you can use it mashed up. You know, you can use it liquefied like a ketchup or a sauce. You can, you can uh, bake it. I mean, it, it's on top of some of our most popular food items, whether it's pasta or pizza. I mean, it's ubiquitous worldwide. There's so many different um countries and uh, cuisines that use tomatoes at at my nursery where I sell tomato plants I, I talk to people f- from all walks of life and you know they come in and they they tell me how much they love tomatoes whether or not they they grew up in Iran or Japan or or England or Spain and uh, some people will even bring me seeds of 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 their parents or grandparents' gardens and in these crazy different countries and want me to propagate them so that that particular strain of tomato is preserved uh, because I, I think it's this diversity of, of ways of utility that you can use it in cooking uh, that is, is captivate, that's so captivating for people. Yes, and there's something in it for chefs that's very special as well because tomatoes has a, a very savory taste about it that uh, is very special in foods, right? Right. It can, and you know, based on the type of tomato, it can be different flavors as well. I mean, most people just are used to supermarket tomatoes and. A lot of those tomatoes are hybrid tomatoes, meaning that they've been bred uh, by a person for a commercial purpose, usually not for taste. But when you start to delve into the world of open pollinated tomatoes, also known as heirloom or heritage tomatoes, you find that that these flavors can be quite complex and diverse from very, very, very sweet a very savory, even a smoky barbecue flavor to some of them. And I, I mean, I remember gr- growing tomatoes for Chef David Kinch. Um, he would he would take some varieties of tomato, let's say like Paul Robeson or Black Creme or Cherokee Purple, and and make one type of dish out of it. But then he would use a different type of tomato, let's say white ox heart or um great white and he would use and he would use those for a completely different type of dish that had opposite flavors Mm -hmm. and one time i asked him about that and and i said aren't they aren't they um interchangeable and he says oh no 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 no. i would never use a paul robeson for the white ox heart dish very very different flavors and again we're talking about a chef who's going for perfection uh, in his presentation and his meals because he's looking for the those Michelin stars. And you gave it those stars to him. I can, I'll never forget the look on his face when he, exp- he described how you, you showed up at his, at his restaurant with uh, a sampling of your tomatoes. And he realized that with 
your tomatoes, he could do those special kinds of dishes that required special kinds of tomatoes. Now, with respect to the typical tomatoes that we find in the grocery store, like you said, most were designed and uh, uh, bred for uh, very utilitarian purposes, which like to ripen at the same time, to ripen quickly, to be disease-resistant, and so on and so on and so on. So and what what you've been doing is going for those heritage tomatoes that have character, right? That's right. I just want to, as an aside, I, I never give any Michelin stars to David Kinch. He he earned them rightly on his own account without <laughs> without any help from me. He's he is a culinary genius, and uh, truth be told, he could have got very 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 fine tomatoes from any good tomato farmer in his area. He he truly truly is a is a god among chefs. Um, but to get back to to get back to tomatoes, um, yes, the uh, usual hybrid tomatoes, what you'll find in a grocery store, one of the utilitarian things they breed into supermarket hybrid tomatoes is shelf life. And when they, when they breed for shelf life, it, that scientific process of, of being able for the tomato to stay on a supermarket shelf without going bad for weeks on weeks, um, that removes the flavor from the tomato. And um, I think this is one of the main reasons why people want to grow their own tomatoes because they can be guaranteed of, of really fine flavor. You're allowing the tomato to properly ripen in the sun in your garden. And, you know, that's another thing, Michael, is that commercial tomatoes are often picked green and then so that they can be trucked to the facility in big trucks without squishing on top of each other. And so they're, they're picked necessarily under ripe. And uh, the tomato really needs to have the sunlight shining on it as it's ripening in order to increase the, the sugar content inside the tomato. And when you're growing your own, that's, that's what you're going to want to do. And, and one of the many ways we get an extra good taste in tomato. Maybe that's why they say there's only two things that money can't buy, true love uh -huh. and homegrown tomatoes. Because you got it, that right. It takes a lot to get there. Well, uh, Love Apple Farms, you're a farmer, you're an entrepreneur, you're a teacher. Which is your favorite? Oh, gosh. Um, I think being creative and in different ways of reaching people and spreading the word about not only how to garden well, but different varieties of heirloom fruits and vegetables. Uh, you, you know, when you go into a normal nursery or, or even a farmer's market, you're, you're, you are only being able to shop for varieties of things that that farmer or that, um, that nursery has decided is going to appeal to the masses. Mm -hmm. Going to sell but, the most. I like what's going to sell the most likely. But what I like to do is throw in a lot of weirdos to get people into thinking that, hey, there are some other varieties of tomatoes, peppers, spinach, 
corn, um, melons that that go way back in our culture that taste absolutely delicious. And let's start propagating them ourselves. Let's start growing them ourselves because you ain't going to be able to find that thing in any farmer's market or at, at any nursery. And when you become a, a weirdo seed propagator, I think that's so much fun. <laughs> and that's what you are, a weirdo seed propagator and tomato plant propagator. So you teach people how to do these things, how to be a weirdo plant propagator. Where do you start if you, you're going to have a, a seminar on growing tomatoes? What's lesson number one? Lesson number one is what kind of soil do you have and how can we improve it and maintain its health? Because we always start with the soil. I don't care what kind of farmer or gardener you are, even if you're growing in a little pot in your backyard, on your, on your apartment balcony in Barcelona, you now have to pay attention to your soil. And, um, Soil equals fertility, and that is what we have to pay attention to. I often tell folks that come into my nursery and buy plants from me, um, I'm saying, today I'm selling you a goldfish. I'm selling you a nice, fat, happy baby goldfish. Now it's up to you to take care of that goldfish. And it's going to need more than just water in a bowl. You're going to need to figure out what kind of food it needs, uh, what how big the bowl is going to get as this goldfish continues to grow. And people, you know, they a lot of people never really figure out that this plant needs things other than merely to be watered. Sure. Uh, because sure. they're they're used to maybe house plants. And most of our houseplants, you can get away with watering them every once in a while and kind of ignoring them, and most of them will still live. But our tomatoes are very demanding of us, and we gotta we gotta pay attention to them. And the best place to start is in the soil. I often, I came up with this notion here a while back. Um, they said a long time ago that we are what we eat, but in thinking about that. I realize that we really are what our food eats. So if our food isn't eating good food, we're not going to be able to get any good food from the plants that we eat. I guess that's what you're shooting for by putting fish in the hole and all all those other good things too. It sounds like you're feeding your plants a smorgasbord of great food. Yeah, and you know, we know that for our own health, the more diverse and organic our diet is, the healthier our body becomes. And it's the same with our garden. We want an, a good, well-balanced diet for our garden. It's making an energy conversion for us. It has to take its food energy and convert it into our food energy. Uh, I mean, what's a calorie? A calorie is a unit of energy. And in order for us, for that plant to make a calorically, a calorically rich diet for us, it has to receive its food at a good, on a good schedule, not just one and done. I often tell my students, hey, you, you're not going to go to the gym once and you're not going to get a six pack going to the gym once. 
Um, unfortunately, you got to keep going to that gym. And maybe one of these days you're going to keep going to the gym and you're going to like going to the gym. And it'll be a rewarding thing for your body and your mind. And it's the same with your um, garden. Once you learn how to take care of that garden properly, it's going to reward you and it's going to reward your plants. There'll be a symbiotic relationship there. And that's what we're shooting for, is that relationship with the plant and the soil and nature and bringing them all to the dinner table, um, which is what we really want to do more than anything. What do people do wrong most often when growing their tomatoes? They think that they can only get away with just watering them. Um, they also they also don't pay enough attention to the sunlight needs. Um you don't put it right up next to a fence or near a tree that's going to shade it. It wants all day long sunlight and the tomato uh, wants regular food. So we want to plant it with some good fertilizers in the hole or in the bed. And we want to continue fertilizing it every so often with a good organic liquid, all purpose fertilizer. Um, and we also want to give it enough space. People tend to cram their tomatoes too close together. And when they do that, as the tomato grows, the tomatoes um, start to get crowded. And oh. just like that goldfish in a small bowl is not going to be happy eventually, a tomato being crammed against another tomato or another plant is going to start to pout as well. And we had a very, very, very soggy winter and spring here on the California coast. And um, I'm just getting my tomatoes in right now here at the end of May, my goodness. And you suggest that it might not be too late for that kind of planting this year. It's not at all. I generally advocate that here in the Bay Area of California, San Francisco Bay Area, most people can plant their tomatoes around April 15th. But I have always told them there's a caveat there. If you are in the middle, when April 15th rolls around and you're in the middle of an exceptionally cold, wet spring, wait, wait. And that was us this year. So everybody that waited till May to plant their tomatoes actually will be ahead of the game because they waited for sunnier, warmer weather. When we plant our tomatoes too early, it, they tend to get a disease or they get stunted. When that happens, sometimes the stunting affects them their entire existence and they never get over it. And of course, if they get a disease, very, very hard to cure diseases, might as well just pull the tomato right out of the ground and start over again with something healthy when the time is right, which means warm soil, warm sun, good nutrition, good spacing and now you're now you're off to the races wow they sound just like me everything i want <laughs> right there that's right <laughs> there you go well ladies and gentlemen we're going to take a quick break uh when we come back we're going to talk a little bit about all of the exciting things one can find in cynthia sandberg's Love Apple Farm Greenhouse. And oh my goodness, are you ever going to be surprised at what is in a tomato? Maybe the perfect tomato. So do stay tuned. We will be right back. 
So much to say, so little time to say it, on The Food Chain with Michael Olson. Love Apple Farms, and we're so happy to have you today, Cynthia, to talk about tomatoes, because what could be more fun than talking about tomatoes? Um, and and you know what? I think if when it gets right down to it, that's what farm or gardeners, at least, take the greatest pride in, is talking about their tomatoes. And uh, I have um, a great, great tradition of tomatoes in this neck of the woods. We have uh, dry-farmed heritage tomatoes. Of course, they're all organic. And, and uh, the farmer's markets generally are, are filled with them. But you have something very special in your variety that you simply do not find anywhere and you've been doing this for a lot of years, collecting um, different varieties of tomatoes, and then weeding out a bunch of them, I suspect. How many varieties do you have, Cynthia? Well, um, in my seed bank, I have about 500 varieties of tomatoes in my seed bank. But I, I found that when I'm offering tomatoes to the general public as baby plants as transfer for about a hundred different varieties to the general public. Wow. A hundred varieties of tomatoes. Okay. You have tomatoes that are round and, and ruffled and cherry and grape and ox heart and beefsteak. And these are all descriptions of their physical shape, correct? Those are all body types of tomatoes, yes. The, the term beefsteak tomato means big, round tomato, juicy, big, round tomato. It could be any color of the tomato rainbow, green when it's ripe, yellow, orange, red, purple, chocolate, brown, mahogany stripes, splotches. Uh, so we, the word beefsteak is just a body type, as is ox heart. Ox heart is a heart-shaped tomato, and it does double slicer and a canning tomato or a cooking tomato because it's almost pure meat. When you slice open an ox heart tomato, it has very few seeds, very few of the that watery gel sac that surrounds the seed. And many people that um, don't like to have tomato seeds around in their cooking will often choose an ox heart variety to grow and um, and cook with and use as a slicer, too. Lots of different shapes, lots of different purposes, lots of different colors. It's kind of like a rainbow of colors. Red, purple, pink, I, orange, chocolate, bicolor, striped. My goodness. They're lovely. And each, ha each seems to have a slightly different flavor. And visually, if you slice them up and put them on a plate, like for a caprese salad inter interspersed with basil and mozzarella, uh, a rainbow color of tomatoes is such a delight for yourself, your guests, your family. I like to say you could turn a tomato hater into a tomato lover with the, just the right tomato. Well, which one is that? Oh, it's, it, I don't. Sometimes you just have to experiment uh -huh. with uh, with offering tomatoes to your kids. You know, you know they say that in order to get your kid to be used to any new food, that you've got to offer it to them ten or twelve times, something like that. 
just keep on keeping on with with different types of cherry tomatoes until your kid just turns out to be a tomato fanatic like my kid is. My kid is grown now, but he he was trained from an early age to love tomatoes. And not only does he love to eat them now, he loves to grow them too. There you go. I was just listening to one of my associates uh, on the radio today talking about they have a, a very young son, less than a year old, and they've been giving him everything, a uh, hundred different kinds of foods, uh, a little bit at a time, hoping to increase his appetite for the world, but also to maybe inoculate him against food allergies, too. So... Um, Got to feed a little bit, a, a lot of times, and you can get there. So let's dip into your varietals, uh, because there's a lot of character in here that just blew my mind when I read the menu. So let's start with some of them, and perhaps you can tell me uh, how you came, a little bit of story behind them. Let's start with the Beauty Latringa. Oh boy, that's one of the mo- the most rare varieties that I have available. It's it's really something that you need you need some crazy tomato connections to um, find the seed of that one. It's highly ruffled, meaning it's heavily ribbed. You can see the difference in um, a normal tomato with beauty latringa in that it's not smooth at all you can see the similarity between uh, the ruffled beauty latringa with its sister plant the bell pepper that's also highly lobed or ruffled as well and when you slice open the gorgeous red ruffled beauty latringa you will find some very interesting um pockets of of space in there a little bit hollow like a bell pepper and what's wonderful culinarily about beauty latringa is that you can stuff it you can stuff it with a tuna salad chicken salad you can even bake it while it's stuffed just like a, a bell pepper and it doesn't have the same sharp flavor it has a wonderful sweet flavor so that's the story of Beauty Latringa, a very rare tomato. Um, it's gorgeous, though. You will bring people into your garden and show them how beautiful Beauty Latringa is because it's so pretty. How did you come by it? Do you remember? Gosh, you know what? I can't remember that. I've been I've been growing it and offering it for sale for a couple of decades now. Um, I am a member of Seed Savers Exchange, and when you're a member, you get sent what I call the Bible which is a thick encyclopedia compendium of fellow seed savers around the United States. And they will put a listing in Seed Savers Exchange on the, on the varieties of whether it's tomato or melons or beans that they have as seeds that they would like to exchange with you. Um, and you don't necessarily have to exchange anything, but you do have to send them a little bit of money, a couple of bucks, and a self-addressed stamped envelope, and they'll send you some seeds if you're a member of this exchange. Uh, look it up online if people are interested. But they'll the Seed Savers Exchange organization, once you pay your annual dues, they'll send you the Bible. 
And that's your source for some crazy, weird varieties. And I think that's probably how I came across Beauty Latringa. <laughs> well, speaking of crazy varieties, tell us about the Berkeley tie-dye. <laughs> I have two striped tomatoes. One's called Berkeley tie-dye and the other one's called Hippie Zebra. And when I'm out of one, I'll tell somebody, I'll go, I'm out of Hippie Zebra, but Berkeley tie-dye is very similar because what do hippies wear in Berkeley? They wear tie-dye. Where do hippies congregate? In Berkeley. So um, these two tomatoes, Hippie Zebra and Berkeley tie-dye, are very similar. They're, they're many different colors, and they have pronounced striping on them, and they're absolutely gorgeous and delicious as well. Black Beauty. Now, that's a real weirdo, too. It begins its life almost black. Instead of a little green tomato plant, uh, and instead of a little green tomato on your plant getting bigger and bigger and, and eventually turning red or whatever, it begins its life almost completely black, the fruit. And this is where you can see its its similarity to the deadly nightshade fruit, which is small and black in color, round, small, and black, like a pea um, size. So black beauty begins its life almost black, very tiny, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's the size of a beefsteak, so maybe around the size of a, of a, a tennis ball or even bigger. And it slowly ripens from the bottom up to a beautiful red color, but the top of the fruit still has very, very dark colored shoulders, if you will, to a black beauty. It, it's absolutely stunning. Wow. Brandywine Suddeth. Well, that's a strain from original Brandywine. Everybody's heard of the heirloom Brandywine. It's kind of the original heirloom that people started hearing about a few decades ago. And of course, we've had heirlooms for a lot longer than that. But when heirloom tomatoes came to the came to the forefront of most Americans' um, realization, Brandywine seemed to be right out there. But Brandywine has, kind of has a flaw to it in that you only get a, eight or ten ripe fruit per plant. Well, a person by the name of Farmer Suddeth uh, started growing a strain of Brandywine in, at his farm such that he was able to get more fruit on his Brandywine plants. And it was a little bit different fruit, but the same excellent flavor. So now we have this specific strain of Brandywine called Brandywine Suttis. Is it a popular uh, varietal for you? I mean, do people pick that it up? It is. You have to have a lot of sun to grow it because the fruit is quite large. The larger the fruit is, the more sun you got to give it. Well, holy the less smokes. sun you have... Yeah. Yeah. Holy smokes. We just ran out of time. I'm having so much fun. Cynthia uh -huh. Sandberg, Love Apple Farm. Easy as that, ladies and gentlemen. Track her down and get into the world of growing tomatoes and um, you'll have a, a lot of good food and a lot of good times. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Always a pleasure to be with you. And uh, not so many... Uh, episodes will go under the bridge this time before we meet again. Thank you, you all, got it, folks. Mike. Remember, there it is. We're out of time. Just like that. Thank you, Cynthia. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at MetroFarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. Live.